Um, I'd start off today by just saying, you know what? We have a lot of volunteers that make this happen. And, and I'm not going to try to even uh, t- address like all of them. There's so many of them that, that give of their time, their efforts, and their energies. And I just want to say thanks. Um, you, you know, sometimes there are times where you really recognize that like, hey, our volunteers are awesome. And especially when they're gone, you're like, man, I love those people. I wish they were back, right? And so this morning was actually not an easy thing to pull off because like everybody has either got COVID or is quarantined for COVID or something. There's just all kinds of folks that weren't able and we were able to piece some stuff together and get some people to jump up and step up. And they really blessed us and pulled us out of a bind. So we're just grateful for all of our volunteers. I just want to say that if we haven't said that for a while, please just let me say thanks. And, um, and also too, if you're looking for a spot, we always got a spot somewhere for people to serve because we just need a lot of help. And, and, and so anyway, it's kind of part of going with this. So we are going to talk about marriage. Remember, we are dealing with and kind of trying to walk our way through some of these cultural issues that are just so much in the face of the church right now. Some of the difficult things even, and we just have to have these conversations because everybody is having these conversations. And I wanna have conversations from a biblical perspective. And I wanna tell you that as we deal with today this concept of God's plan for marriage, I want you to know that, that, I, that I get it, that, that we, have, we have stumbled in this area, there have been struggles in this area. I wanna tell you that I have all compassion and empathy because it's affected my life. There's a reality of of the difficulty of this. I know that there are those who are single who would love to be married at the moment, and that's not there. I want to tell you also that Anna and I both have great empathy for that because we spent periods of time, extended periods of time even, single and waiting for the one who God would have for us. So we know the difficulty of what it is. I know how far uh, we have have fallen short in this area, and I want no one here to hear any kind of condemnation or judgment coming from the front of this church, because that's not what we're about. But I do want to emphasize, and I do want to say that the standard does not change. And so regardless of our ability to fulfill this standard or to live up to what God has called us to, it doesn't change. And we live in a world right now that is trying to change everything about the way that God has called us. They're trying to change the different standards that God has set out there so that life and community and um, so that there would be um, really a flourishing, I believe, of human life. So um, just know that, that I I just want to throw that out there. I also want to throw that this concept of truth. Now, when I became a believer, I felt like that God gave me a verse, and that verse was this. It was John 8, 31 and 32, and it says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the truth and freedom are very much connected in the Bible, and deception and bondage also go very much together, right? And we live in a world that is incredibly deceived on a lot of areas, and I just want to say that it isn't blessing us. It isn't blessing us. Our, our views on certain things, as they have shifted away from becoming biblical views, they basically are causing a ton and a ton and a ton of carnage in our culture around us. And, and there's not a person in here today who's not affected by the carnage in our culture that is going out. I can tell you that mental health issues, all kinds of struggles that are happening every day are basically going to tie right straight back to the breakdown of the nuclear family 
in our culture. So if there's one thing that we have to get a hold of again, we have to get a hold of this idea of, of, of what does God have to say? And if God has said it, it's true. I don't want you to hear us try saying anything. Here's your, here's, your, here's your assignment. Whatever I say, you have to check up with God's word. If, it doesn't, if God's word does not match what I say, don't listen to me. Seriously. Because I'm a guy. I could make a mistake. I could misinterpret. I could see something the wrong way. I just want to tell you also, if you see something and you say, man, you got this wrong, here's what I'm going to ask out of you is scripture. Not opinions, not feelings, not thoughts, not any of these things. I can tell you that it's, it's a very tough thing in a lot of these issues. But if there's one thing that we must reclaim as a culture, it is marriage. It is the nuclear family because there are things that come out of this that bring forth a society that is happening in a good and fruitful and profitable way for everybody around it. So it's a big deal. And I think that as a people, we believe that we can shift and we can change and we can tweak these little things according to how we feel or what we think the way things ought to go. And there won't be any ramifications in the world around us. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous place to start from. So we want to start from the place of God's word as being truth. And we believe here that God's word is infallible, that what God has given us, he's given us for life and he's given us for goodness. And it's true, regardless of what 51% of the people out there think. And this is the culture that we live in, really. We live in a world that basically is trying to gauge truth on what 51% of the people out there are doing or experiencing right now. So what do we do? How do we do this? Wait, I thought I had a different one. So marriage, what is it? We're going to talk about this. We are going to deal with this. And, and, and what we're going to do, what I want to do today is look at the authenticity of marriage and what God has, has called it to be, what it really is, not what we've made it into being. And so if you were going to look and you were going to be a person who was looking for counterfeit $100 bills, the best way for you to figure out what a counterfeit $100 bill was, was to be, would be to study the actual $100 authentic bill. The more you studied it, the more you would know it, the more you would know it, the more easily you would be able to identify and quickly identify things that weren't authentic. So marriage, what is it? What is it? It's the second most important decision in your life. That's what it is. It's the second most important decision in your life. Your first most important decision that any one of us will make is our relationship to Jesus. That's the one thing we really need right? But after that, who you spend the rest of your life with in a committed relationship, who you choose to have family with and, and, and enter into this covenant relationship, and we're going to talk about that, it's the second most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. And again, it comes back down to, and almost all of these issues come down to a place of origins. Where do you believe marriage came from? Is it from God? Or, or is it just some random social um, product that we came up with to legally be able to divide our stuff up when it doesn't work and legally be able to deal with children or whatever that looks like? And, and, and the Bible is very clear. It's incredibly clear that marriage is God's thing. That marriage is a much bigger thing. That as a matter of fact, we've got to remember that within marriage, there is a spiritual overtone to the world that we live in. 
There's a spiritual overtone to your life. There are literally, there is a spiritual realm that is all around us even now and whatnot. There is one that is benevolent and there is one that is malevolent. There is one that seeks to destroy and uproot and, and take away the things that God has given. And then there's that which is, which is fighting for what's true and what's right and what's good. I'm going to give you some stats for, for marriage here real quick. There are 2.5 million weddings per year in the U.S., okay? So we can't get away from it. It doesn't matter how secularized our, our country becomes. We still have this thing because it's knit into us. I keep telling you this thing that the gospel is knit into us. It is, it, we can't help but express it because it's part of who we are. We keep marrying even though we are a secular nation because we can't not do it because we seek, because it's the deepest desire of the human heart to live in a forever committed relationship with another person. That's what we all long for. We're not longing to jump out, jump into this one and that one and this one and that one, and then over here and then over there. That's not fulfilling, and we all know it. What we're seeking for, what we look for, even we look at it in the animal kingdom, we see two geese, we're like, oh gosh, the, you know that they made for life. <laughs> it's beautiful, right? It's this beautiful thing when we see that. It pulls at us. It tugs at our soul because it's part of who we are. So there are 2.5 million weddings per year in the U.S. The median age for men is 30, 28 for women. There are more Americans under 25 right now that cohabitate together than marry. 15% of those 25 to 34 live with an unmarried partner. Every 13 seconds, there is a divorce. There are 780,000 divorces every year. Okay, uh, let's see. The world around you would say that family, marriage, the nuclear family, the structure that it provides is, is a blip in the history of the world. That it's just part of really religious oppression. And that's how we came to, to be at this spot. But I'm going to show you that there's, there's some real things that, that we can look at that are going to show us otherwise. I think if we really start to follow where does this go, we'll see where it goes. You see, the Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve, the two becoming one. And remember last week, we talked about the amazing thing that science has now shown us, that it's not just this a concept of that, yeah, we know we're two, one, and Anna brings kind of a more feminine side, and I bring a more masculine side, and together we, we bring some stuff together, and we become a more complete whole. And that's the truth. But at the point of conception, literally, one cell from mom and one cell from dad fused together to, to create a completely new human genome that has never existed before, nor will ever exist again. What an amazing thing that those two literally become one at that point of co-creation with the Creator. What, what, a, what a thing, and that's why we talked about why we stand for life like we do, and, and, and where we come back to this idea of origins with life, we're saying, where do you believe it started? Because if you believe that it started in a puddle of mud and it just happened to happen to happen to happen, then you will believe that a human being also at some certain point developmentally only becomes a human being at a certain point, right? The problem with our culture now is that we're saying that that, could, that, that wouldn't necessarily uh, exclude it from being a day before birth, that it wouldn't be a human, right? And, and, and so anyway, we're, we're struggling and our culture is struggling out there and we've got to get back to this idea of, of human uh, truth, the truth that, that God has given us. The Bible ends with a marriage. The wedding supper of the Lamb, it's a picture of that one day all of the believers will be together and there will be a dinner 
that will represent the completion of the wedding uh, between Jesus, the, bro- the groom, and his church, the bride. What an amazing picture. See, this is why Christians say that marriage is important. Why we say that it matters. We believe because it comes from a place of theonomy or that God has given this rule or law. Therefore, you can't legislate it away. You can't change it. You can't adapt it to be anything else because God has prescribed it to be so. Now, we can do that, but to be honest with you, it really just doesn't count. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people, and you'll hear out there in the world, they'll say, well, Jesus never really dealt with that subject. He never really dealt with marriage or what marriage looked like or, or you know, any of the different forms or struggles that we're seeing today um, in our culture. And, and I'm going to say that he did. Jesus made a very profound uh, and a statement that just said, look, here it is. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and said, is it lawful for, lawful for man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus said, have you not read he who created them from the beginning? made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. You see, Jesus actually makes a very profound statement about marriage. And and one of the profound things that he says is that it is as it has always been. It's unchanging. It doesn't adapt. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't, it doesn't change to, to match cultures or anything like that. It is what it has always been, and it's unchanging. And it also, he says that it happens between a man and a woman, that this is the parameters by which God has given marriage. And we're going to talk more about some of that and why that looks like that is. But then it also says that a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. It's about community. It's about, it's about taking this. It's about taking God's plan, and it's about furthering it out into community. It's about growing community together. And so this is Jesus' statement on marriage. Ephesians 5 says this. Verses 22 to 32, it says, Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are parts of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So is marriage just some social thing? No, marriage is the representation on earth of the very nature and the character and the person of God. And it's meant to be displayed to the world in this way that brings goodness, it passes something on, it's a place where children learn and grow, it's a place where we display 
the goodness of who God is. It's triune in nature, right? We have God who is the Father, who is the Son, and who is the Spirit, right? And, and we, we can get into some stuff that we're not actually going to get all into, like the whole uh, submission thing and all of that stuff. All I'm going to say is this. I'm going to say that there is order that God has given. There's, there's, there's not, it's not about equality. It's not about better than. If we ever start talking about better than, then, then, then all of us guys just need to uh, concede the fact that ladies are far superior to us on so many levels, and, 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 and that's the truth. But this isn't about better than. It's not about abilities. It's about an order that God has, has put out there, and he's just saying that wives, you know what? Just you, 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 should, you should live with your husband in this place where, where you see him as a leader that, because God has called men to lead in their homes. But, see, and we get stuck on that. But I want to tell you that, that there's a huge calling for the husband in this. And the huge calling is that he would give himself for his wife in the same way that Christ gave himself for the church, that he would love her, agape love without condition, and that he would give himself even to the point of death for his wife. You see, this isn't an on-top pyramid. This is an upside-down pyramid. God's kingdom always is. And this husband is not a leader who is the, who's the king of the house, who when it shows up, everybody starts getting in order. No, he is a husband who comes home and he serves his family. His deepest desire is to see everyone in his family flourish, starting with his wife and meeting the needs that, that he would see her in her life and he would position him, his life and her life in a place where she could prosper because that's his job. That's the calling on his life because this is what Jesus has done for the church. Jesus came and he gave himself even to the point of death to purchase his bride. Do you, see, do you see why this is the thing? This is why we hold such value to marriage as Christians is because the Bible tells us that this is a picture of who Jesus is and that in this intimate, committed, covenant relationship, we're displaying the gospel to the whole world. We're telling them about who this God is. That, and, and guess what? When we talk about submission, you see, you see this thing, uh, Del Tackett on the Truth Project did this really cool thing where he said, you know, it, it says that wives should submit to their husbands and, 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 um, and, and that, that, that children sh should, um, they're supposed to honor their parents, right? And, and so he, he did this three thing with the, with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and you've got the Father who's the head. And you've got the son who submitted his will to the father's will. And when he did that, it wasn't an ugly thing. It was a beautiful thing. It was a, it was a cooperative thing that brought harmony and brought salvation to all of us. But you see, for us, it's ugly. Why? Because the enemy has twisted it. He's twisted our, our language. He's twisted our understanding of, of what this picture is. This picture is a beautiful picture of harmony. It's a beautiful picture of God and his redemptive work in the world around us, and we've made it ugly. God, uh, with the, 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 uh, the Bible says that, that even the Nicene Creed says this idea that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and it, 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 without getting too much into that, what it's saying is that out of this relationship between a husband and wife, children come forth. Creation happens. And in that creation, what are the children told to do? They're told to honor their father and their mother. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit honors the father and the son. 
And so this picture becomes this much bigger picture. It's a picture of much depth, and it has a spiritual overtone, a spiritual depth, a spiritual reality to this world. And you see, we can't start messing with this thing and think that it starts uh, or that it would have no effect in our lives. As a matter of fact, it's got incredibly profound brokenness in the world around us because of the way that we've approached this, because, of, because we've minimized it because we've, we've not recognized the spiritual reality and overtones of what this is. We've, we've minimized it, and we've just made it kind of this, this, this place of, of, of limited um, commitment that says, hey, if it's working for me, maybe I'll stay in. If not, hey, about 51% of them get out. It's no big deal. This isn't the picture. You see, it's sacred. This isn't a random practice. This is a, a, a sacred thing that has been given to us, and the church has to return to what is sacred. We have to begin to stand on that and say, this is sacred. It's been given by God. It, it's not just random. It's not just this physical thing. We can't just run around and do however we want to and think that there'll be no effects in our culture. Marriage provides for lifelong commitment and partnership. It's the security of the promise that makes the difference. It's when we say, I do. You see, there's something profoundly powerful in that awkward act that happens at a marriage ceremony where two people stand before God and before all of their friends and witnesses and say, I'm committed to you regardless of what happens in the future. That if we're sickness, health, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, all of those things, I'm in. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to stay. You see, this is the very nature of covenant relationship. And this is another thing that marriage displays is the reality that God is in covenant relationship with us. Leviticus 26, 44 to 45 says, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so loathe them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations so that I might be their God. I am the Lord. You see, the difference between a covenant and a contract is this. A contract says, I'll do my part if you do yours. If we get in a contract to make widgets and you're making widgets for me and your, 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 your performance for widget making is uh, acceptable, then now I need to pay you. But if you don't make enough widgets that day, you broke the contract. I'm, I'm not obligated on my end. Do you see what God is saying? He says, I'm obligated regardless. I'll do my part regardless of what you do. You fall short, you mess up, I will still hold my end of this covenant promise of this relationship. And this is the picture of marriage. You see, the world does relationship this way. It says, look, if you perform, then I'll perform too. You meet my needs you make me who I want you to make me be, whether it's you improve my status or, or my well-being or you're hot or you're funny or you got money or whatever that looks like, you keep performing in that thing and I'll keep bringing on my end what I know you want. But the day you quit bringing that, now guess what? I'm going to begin withholding what I know you're in it for. And then people enter into these patterns of withholding and they go further and further and further apart. You know what the Bible says? It's an interesting context, and we're going to talk about this later, too. But 1 Corinthians 7, 3, 4, and 5 actually talks about sex. And you know what? The Bible isn't prudish about that. It really isn't. We're adults, and we have to be able to talk about this. And we're going to talk about this a whole lot next week, so just know that, okay? But the, it actually says, you know what? You need to put your, your needs aside, and you need to serve the needs of your spouse. And they need to put their needs aside and serve your needs, 
Actually, the Bible teaches that a man, and a husband and a wife should have sex and have a lot of it. It does. It goes on to say, hey, don't withhold too long from each other or anything like that. Don't enter into patterns of withholding. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't use it as a weapon. Don't use it as a means of reward. Serve each other with this gift. Because this gift is a sacred gift as well. And this gift is a gift of intimacy shared exclusively by two people that's beautiful. And so, so anyway, this picture is, is that we, as, as people married, we, we put our own needs aside and we serve the needs of our, of our spouse. And they put their needs aside and they serve their, the other person's need. And guess what happens when you do that? You into a place of perpetual motion where you get your needs met because everybody in here has needs that must be met, need to be met. You'll run out of gas if you're on your own in this deal. But if two people will do this and give themselves to one another and wake up every day and say, how could I serve you? Then guess what? You'll have your needs all met, but it will change the perspective of how they're met. Instead of being met by a selfish perspective that says, you must perform for me, it gets met from a selfless perspective that says, I'll serve your needs and I'll meet your needs. It's drastically different. You get the same effect, but from a drastically different place, you see, and God is always trying to change our perspective on these things. He's always trying to help us with this. Jeremiah 31 uh, talks about covenant as well. It says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel for those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not uh, teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of, the, to, of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. What a picture of God saying, I will be faithful in my end of this covenant, even though they've already broken theirs. I'll be faithful in mine. And you know what I will do? I will forget. I will forget their sins. God almost always in the Bible, his, his remembering has to do with his actions. He remembered Noah and caused the floods to, to, to dissipate. He remembered Hannah and gave her a child. But you know what he said about our sins? He's chosen to remember them no more. They don't bring an action. They, they're, they're now filled. We, we live now in an age of grace, an age of mercy and grace, and a place where, where God has said, I'm going to create a new covenant within them, not an external law, not a bunch of laws that say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, but a law that's written on the inside that it becomes the desire of our own hearts. How do we have that, though? We have to have that by knowing the truth by knowing God's truth, by pursuing it, by living it out in our own lives, by recognizing the reality of this. You see, this is about spending yourself for somebody else. It's about spending yourself for somebody else, for your children. It's about agape love, which is the highest form of love. It's a love that's without condition. It's the love that God loves you with and me with. And we are given this gift to display to the world the goodness of God, and we've so mishandled it. We've so messed it up because we, because we didn't know what truth was. You see, covenant is a transformative act that changes the way two people look at one another. 
the future, and the community that they live in. Marriage makes you both responsible to and for some another human being, and both halves of that dynamic leave each to live a more dynamic and whole life. This is what the intentions are. You see, there's incredible power in marriage, and there's also incredible destructive capacity because of the intimacy that is involved here. But you see, even that intimacy on the front end of things is meant to have some parameters. And when we go outside of those parameters, what we end up with is relationship that is, the intimacy level is way up here and the commitment level is way down here. And the problem with that is that that those two things are meant to rise together. And when they don't, we end up in relationships in which the intimacy level is so high that the cost to get out is too great. And I'm convinced, and we'll talk about this some more next week, that people enter into the marriage covenant that already know I shouldn't be in it. But we've went so far, and we've, we've went this way so long, that now the stakes to get out are so deep and so high. So, another reason for marriage is this. It is about the family. Malachi 2, 14 through 16. I'm going to read this from the message And it says this, and here's the second offense. You filled the place of worship with your whining and sniveling because you don't get what you want from God. Do you know why? Simple. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride, and now you've broken those vows, broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? children of God. That's why. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel army says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. It's an incredible difficulty because when two lives that were together that have been joined into one come apart, there's a tearing and there's a ripping and there's, there's, there's just a lot of difficulty. And I want to tell you, again, I'm empathetic. I get that. I have been there. I have known that. But what is part of the purpose of marriage? Well, it's to have kids. It's to bring children out into the world. It's not the exclusive thing. And and I want to tell you, too, disclaimer, if you're struggling with that area of life, too, that you're much more than that and that that God still has plans and he has these, uh, he he has ways of, of doing these things. But his overall arching A plan is that that biological parents would raise their biological children. And all of the data is going to show you that when biological parents raise their biological children in a home that is peaceful and loving and focused on God, that those children, time after time after time, excel and do well. They just do. So it creates the nuclear family. And the world is attacking this model of the nuclear family right now in a big way. The, the, the enemy wants to tear down the nuclear family and reinvent it. We believe that somehow we can just take pieces however we want to, whichever way they fall, and like Tetris, just kind of rebuild this thing into something that will work and is good. The nuclear family um, is attacked by this first statement, the idea that it's just a blip brought on by a religious oppression. That it's just, just a historical blip. It's not. 
been going on a long time. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hold this. It's one of the things that makes humans human, and, and, and it's a distinct thing that we have. And then it also that it has no connection to the well-being of others, that it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You get divorced or whatever, it doesn't matter. The kids are going to do fine. Well, I'm going to tell you that they can. They can do okay, but they cannot do without the scars that happen in that. Again, I've been there. I've seen this. I know this. I, 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 I know that this is the reality. I want, I want to read for you, too, something that was actually taken out of. And, and I read this not because I want to tell you, first off, um, and, and this is specifically from the Black Lives Matter website. And, and I want to tell you that I absolutely stand on that ideal, the idea that Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. And of course, we as Christians should be all about justice and all about love and all about caring and recognizing about equality and things like this. But I want to tell you that there was an, there's an undertone to the organization. So I can stand with the idea of Black Lives Matter. I cannot stand with the organization, Black Lives Matter. And here's why I'll tell you. And it says this. It says, this comes from their, and even kind of noteworthy and a little bit worrisome, is that this came from their what we believe statement, which they've now removed from their, their homepage. So this was on there, it has been removed, and it says, we dismantle the patriarchal practices that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure required by supporting each other's extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. Now, there are some things about that that sound good, but I can tell you that what the communities that we're talking about don't need is to destroy patriarchal or the fathers or their position within the family. What, what those communities need is for their men to stand up and to be fathers and to be husbands and to be home and to raise children. And that is part, but see, we get to this spot where when it's not working, we say, well, that's not working. We'll discard that and we're gonna start something new. But this is what we need to do as Christians. We've gotta say, this isn't working. We admit that, but we've gotta get back to what God has said. We've gotta get back to what is true and what is right. And, and, and so this idea that the West, we're gonna disrupt the nuclear family structure is, is an incredibly dangerous thing. You know, another thing that, that biological parents give to kids is identity. And, and anybody, and I'll tell you that, you know, people, you know, people who are adopted and adoption is an amazing thing, and it's part of God's plan as well, and it's a picture of that. But adoption and those who are adopted generally struggle with biological identity. Who am I? Where do I come from? Do people care? Why did this happen? You see... There's great B plans, and there's wonderful parents that step into that role and adopt, and that's a beautiful thing. But we just have to know that, that the A plan still is the A plan, and we can't get away from that. Um, the other thing that moms and dads do is they model life. They model life to children. They model marriage and relationships to their kids. This is part of what you're doing. You're modeling life to your kids. You're teaching them what, what life is about, what it's like to be a father, what it's like to be a mother. And, and only a mom and a dad can really do that for either sex, for either kid, male or female. Two men cannot bring the feminine aspect of what it is to raise a child. Two women cannot bring the masculine aspect of what it is to raise a child or the things that either a, a, a young man or a young woman need to know about that. 
You see, your kids, will, they'll experiment. They'll, they'll, they'll learn that they'll watch and, and have a relationship modeled to them. They'll see how to do this, how to do disputes, how to do the arguments, how to live within that relationship. And we can't reinvent that into something different and think that there will have no effects uh, in the world around us. It's just, it's, it's just not... There's just going to be aspects of that relationship that just aren't there. Only a mother and a father can provide the balanced information that every one of us needs to navigate life. Children raised outside of an intact marriage are more likely to live in poverty, experience abuse, fail and drop out of school, use drugs and alcohol, have premature sexual activity, become teen parents. They have a greater chance in their lives for divorce, suicide, mental illness, physical illness, commit crime, go to jail, and have less successful careers. The world says that you would live a happier life divorced, while in actuality, married people live longer, healthier, happier, and more affluent lives. Some of the benefits of marriage are it's safer. Divorced women are up to five times more likely to be victims of violence. Bachelors are up to four times more likely to be violent crime victims. Two-thirds of violence against women is committed by intimate partners. Those who are cohabitating are three times more likely to experience domestic violence. Health. Married people live longer, healthier lives. Nine out of ten married men alive at 48 will make it to 65, while six in ten single men will, for will, and then for women, it's nine out of ten versus eight out of ten will make it to their senior years. Uh, happily married couples have better functioning immune systems. It saves your kids' lives. Um, a parent divorce knocks four years off of an adult child's life expectancy. 40-year-olds from divorced homes were three times more likely to die from all causes than those whose parents stayed married. They earn more money, and they manage their money better. Married couples do. Marriage increases fidelity. Cohabitating men are four times more likely to cheat than married, and women are eight times more likely to cheat. One in ten cohabitating couples is still together after five years. Mental health. Married people are less depressed, less anxious, and less psychologically distressed than single, divorced, or widowed Americans. By contrast, divorce leaves one prone to depression, hostility, low self-esteem, anxiety, and substance abuse. They're happier. 40% of married people claim to be happy with their life, contrasted to 25% um, of those who aren't. They have a better, more satisfying sex life, and within the marriage covenant is the only place where sex is to be practiced. It's because of the promise. It's because of the security of the promise and the security that intimacy needs to express itself in a safe place. There's a promise that God has had. It's parameters. It's a safety valve that he's put in place to keep our hearts right and to experience these things in the way to where he actually hands us the fullness of what he intended. And let me encourage you out there, just as good marriages can go bad, bad marriages can go good. But in a society that values the, the value of marriage, it's going to be a whole lot easier to fight for and stay in the middle of a bad marriage versus living in a society that just tells you, get divorced, you'll be happier. The whole idea of getting divorced and you'll be happier is is a fallacy that doesn't prove true in most people's cases. I'm not going to say all of them. And we can never say all in any of these things because 
There, there's, there's not this reality that, you know, when I talk about parenting and couples and biology and those kinds of things, can other people um, do that? Can they love? Yes, of course they can love. It's not about that. What it is about is about how do we create an environment in where someone flourishes the best, and it's God who knows that. Ultimately, at the end of the day here, I want to tell you something. I'm just going to hit this really quick. The gospel is this marriage picture, and, and it's portrayed all through the Bible. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, what you'll see is that Abraham uh, sent for a bride for Isaac, and he sent his servant to go to his, back to his land to get, to, and, and this servant, he sat down, and the first thing he did was he said, okay, God, I want to know who she is. I'm going to say, hey, will you give me a drink? Give me a drink. And, and, and you know what she did? She said, he, he saw her and first off, and she, here she came. And you know what? She was beautiful. She was amazing. She was perfect. And when he asked her, will you give me a drink? She says, yes. And not only you, but I'll water your camels as well. She was incredibly just polite and, and agreeable and all of these kinds of things. And she became the bride for Isaac, Rebecca, right? Well, move forward a long time in the future. And Jesus sits down at a well at about noon. And a woman comes to that well and he says, hey, give me a drink. And she's not quite as agreeable. She's like, why are you asking me? Why are you a Jewish man asking me, a Samaritan woman, even for, why are you even talking to me? And he says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and, and I would have given you living water. And she's like, pfft. What do you, you don't even have a bucket, you got nothing, you're trying to say you're better than our ancestors and all this stuff. Who, do you, who are you? Who do you think you are? And, and they keep going, and, and, and he starts to tell her some things about her, and she starts to go, whoa, wait a minute, man, if, if, if I could get some of this living water and I wouldn't have to come here every day, maybe I'd take some of that. And he says, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He says, yep, you're right, you've had five. And the guy you're with isn't your husband. And that's profound in this society, especially there. We, we, we think little of it, but there she was an outcast. And I don't know why she'd had five husbands, but either way, she was accursed to the people around her, whether they had died or whether she was just struggling with relationship and just had went from guy to guy to guy to guy. We don't know. But this last man wouldn't even do her the dignity of making her his wife. This is how she's seen. She's an outcast. She's not beautiful. She's not perfect. She's not a virgin like Rebecca. She's been married five times, but you know what Jesus' ultimate invitation to her was? I'll be your husband. I'll, I'll invite, I'm inviting you into the bride of Christ, and I'll be your husband. And you see, that's a, that's a message that, that we, we can't, we have to carry this message. We have to recognize the reality and the spiritual overtones and we have to just continue to say, even though it's not easy, and I get that, that marriage is what God has pronounced it to be. It can't be legislated. It can't be changed. It can't be made different by our culture or the society around us. It's an institution given by God. It's a gift given by God, and it's sacred. Therefore, we continue to stand and say that biblical marriage, as God has defined it, is the acceptable in the right way. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we just want to be a people of grace, and we want to be kind and compassionate. And Lord, we just want to be, um, we don't want to be judgmental, and we don't want to come across that way. But Lord, 
we want to stand on your truth, and we want to continue to believe and to know that, Lord, your truth is what brings goodness. It's your truth that, that helps people to flourish and to, to move into um, a place of freedom, a place of life, Lord. We've called so much of what you call bondage life. Lord, we just pray that you forgive us, that you would, um, that you would renew us, that you would help us, Lord. Help us as a, as a society, help us as a world, help us as a church to repent of our own sin first, Lord, to recognize that we have mishandled this, we have minimized it, we've agreed with the world and not with you, that we haven't, we haven't held our marriages in the esteem that we should. We haven't worked hard enough at them. We haven't valued them in the way that you do. We haven't expressed them to the world uh, around us as an expression of who you are and as, a, as, as, a, as an expression of the gospel, of the relationship that we now have with you that you're the groom and that your church is the bride and that one day the promise is, is that you'll return for your bride, Lord. Help us to stand strong, Lord, in these times. Help us to stand firm on truth, but help us to do it in love and help us to, to have the message that says, Lord, we know that your truth brings freedom, that it brings life, that it brings goodness. And Lord, we want to be a people who promote those things and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.